I want to give you a term that maybe you are familiar with. Maybe this will be a, a first time for you. But whatever the case, whether you have heard this expression before or whether it is just about to hit you like a ton of bricks, I promise you that you have used this tool. Researchers have titled this thing a rank order scale. Here it is. You can see it right up on the, the screens. A rank order scale. All of us have a mechanism buried deep within us. Some people, it's a little shallower than others, but we all have a mechanism deep within us that uses this whole idea, the rank order scale. Now, if you're not familiar with what it is, here's a working definition of it. A rank order scale gives the respondent a set of items and asks them to put the items in some form of order. The measure of order can include things such as preference, importance, liking, effectiveness, and so on. Now, that's the working definition of a rank order scale, but here's how it is used. We all use it on a daily basis to determine things like this. What we will wear when we get up in the morning. What things need to be done throughout the course of the day. We use the rank order scale to determine what priorities in our life will receive preferential treatment. We use the rank order scale to determine what we'll eat, what movies we want to watch, where we'll go on vacation. We use this same mechanism to determine importance and value in our life. And we use it in all kinds of different ways. We use it daily. Interestingly enough, when we are applying the rank order scale, more often than not, we will use it from greatest to least, meaning A to Z. Whatever sits at the top of the list is the most important to us, and whatever is at the bottom is the least important. The Bible actually uses the whole mechanism of rank order scales pretty regularly. Not necessarily to say that the thing at the top of the list is the most important, at the bottom is the least important, but to give order to a number of different things, including discipleship. I want to show you how this works in the Bible. If you brought a, a Bible with you, open up with me to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. You're about to see a rank order scale as used by God. This is verse 5 of chapter 1. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the rank order scale. At the top of it, we find faith. At the bottom of the list, we find love. Faith is the foundation on which all of those other bricks are stacked. And love seems to be the pinnacle of all of it. We begin our walk with Christ in faith and we progress to a place where we are loving not only God, but loving our neighbors as well. That's a rank order scale as God would apply it. There are other places in scripture where he does the same thing. Let's go to the book of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
Again, that's a rank order scale, beginning with love and ending with self-control. That's how Paul would order the fruits of the Spirit. Now, again, I'm not saying that he says love is more important than self-control, but what he's teaching in this particular case is that when we begin to utilize the fruit of the Spirit of love, it will add uh, up against that every one of the other things that he put in that list and end with self-control. That's a rank order scale. And it seems to make logical sense everywhere we go in Scripture until we come to the armor of God. And then the whole thing is turned inside out. The whole idea of the rank order scale gets inverted. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 6. If you've been worshiping with us very long at all, you know that we've been for the past few weeks in a study of the armor of God. We'll be in that for another couple of weeks. Today, the piece of the armor that we're going to look at would seem to fit at the top of the list, but it's not. Let me show you what I mean. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. In verse 17, we read just a short little description of one piece of the armor. And take the helmet of salvation. Now, as we're making our way through all of that, the rank order scale seems to apply. We said a few weeks ago that the belt of truth was the key element of the armor. And when it is fastened in place, it is the hinge pin on which everything else rests. The breastplate of righteousness rests against the belt of truth. The sword of the Spirit will hang off of it. We've gone through all of those things saying that the belt of truth was of the utmost importance. But then we get to verse 17. And the Apostle Paul says, pick up the helmet of salvation. And put it on. Right there, the rank order scale stops dead in its tracks. In modern Christianity and in most churches, we teach that salvation is the very first step in our walk with Christ. So if we're applying the rank order scale idea to the armor of God, the natural question has to be, why was the helmet of salvation not first? Why was the belt of truth first and not the helmet of salvation, if, if salvation is what everything else is built upon? Well, as you get into the whole idea of what Paul is talking about in this helmet of salvation, you find out that it is much deeper than just our forgiveness for sins that we experience in our first step in salvation. The helmet of salvation covers a lot more than that. This morning... I want to show you at least three dimensions that the helmet deals with. Three dimensions of salvation that we all have to pay attention to. But before we get there, let's just explore the idea of the helmet of salvation. 
In order to do that, we're going to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms, right in the middle of your Bible, 140th chapter, verse 7. I love the fact that David, thousands of years prior to the writing of the New Testament, is talking about a New Testament concept. Psalm 140, verse 7. Listen to what he says. O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Now, if you're a note taker in your Bible, you may want to write in the margin next to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, Psalm 140, verse 7, because this is an Old Testament depiction of the helmet of salvation. Look at what David is saying. God is the strength of his salvation. That is a truth. The belt of truth would deal with such things. That is a truth that we cannot move away from. On our own, salvation is impossible. God is the strength of our salvation. He is the source of our salvation. And David acknowledges that. But then he goes on to say, you have covered my head in the day of battle. What an interesting word picture. God is the source of his salvation, the strength of his salvation, and God has covered his head. In order to understand that, you have to explore a little bit the idea of the helmet that Roman soldiers would wear when they were going into battle. They were varied in nature, some of them made out of pure metal, some of them made out of leather with pieces of metal placed within the leather, but they all had the exact same purpose. They were to fend off attacks from arrows that would be flying at them. But more than that, broadswords. That's why they wore the helmet. The enemy would come riding through their ranks, swinging a broadsword above their head with a sole purpose of splitting open the melon of their enemy. That's why they used the broadsword, and that's what they were trying to accomplish. The helmet was a piece of armor designed to combat the broadsword to keep those from splitting their heads open. You might remember last week we talked about anxiety. The English word that we have for anxiety comes from a Greek word, actually two Greek words, which means to divide the mind, to split open your head, to divide your mind. Well, that's just one of the weapons that the enemy would use that might look like a broadsword. There are a number of others that have the same purpose. They are given to try to get us to divide our mind, to divide our thinking, to travel different paths, particularly in the realm of a Christian. So David says, this is beautiful. You are the strength of my salvation, but you have covered my head. There is protection in my salvation that comes from God. Now chase a rabbit with me for just a second. I want to remind you because a lot of New Testament Christians forget this, there is great value in the Old Testament. Even within New Testament Christianity, there is great value in the Old Testament. The New Testament will actually speak about that itself. Go with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15 verse 4. Paul says, speaking about the value of the Old Testament, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In the margin of your Bible next to Romans 15, verse 4, maybe across the top of the page, you might want to write these words, the value of the Old Testament, so that you never fall prey 
to this thinking that says what was written in the Old Testament is only Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians and that's all that matters. In the New Testament, things from the Old Testament will give validity to the New Testament's teaching. Just like this. Psalm chapter 140 verse 7 is backing up Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17. The helmet of salvation. So don't ever ignore what is written in the Old Testament. In fact, pay very close attention to it. Well, we're dealing with the helmet of salvation today. David has shown us what it looks like. Paul has told us to put it on, but we need to explore it a little deeper to understand exactly why. And that's going to lead us into these three dimensions of salvation. They are listed right here on this board. There's the past, the present, and the future. Majority of people fall into the trap that we've already talked about, believing that salvation only deals with the sins of our past. And when those are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are good. We're in salvation. There is no problem whatsoever. But to ignore the other two dimensions of salvation will put you in harm's way. That's why you need a helmet. So let's explore all three of them so that you can see them in their entirety. We're going to go to the book of Romans for this. In fact, we will set up housekeeping in that book. So Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3, Paul deals with the sins of our past. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. That's a great way of describing what happened with the sins of our past. When Jesus died on the cross, His blood covered every sin that you have ever committed. No matter what it was, no matter how bad it was, every sin of your past was taken care of by Jesus on the cross. If you have accepted his sacrifice and his gift of love, you have accepted that that death on the cross, his death on the cross, took care of this for you. That's just great teaching. Now in chapter 8, Paul would actually show us how deep that process goes. I want you to see this. Verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When your past has been dealt with, all the condemnation associated with it, all of the judgment associated with it, when you become a Christian, is taken care of. You do not have to live under that condemnation any longer. You do not have to carry with you the guilt of your past. You do not have to allow that to define who you are today. None of it matters. Your past has been taken care of by Jesus Christ on the cross. And isn't that great news? It really is. If you have experienced the salvation from your past, would you just say amen? Amen. See, there's just great understanding when the whole church comes together and can agree with one another about the teaching of the Bible. When we say amen, we are saying to everybody around us, I am in agreement with what is being taught. I am in agreement with what the Bible says. Not that your agreement matters. It doesn't change the truth of the Bible. It's just a way of you declaring, I am living in that grace. That's a cool thing. 
Well, the book of Romans chapter 8 goes on to tell us that it's not just our past that has been taken care of, but so has our present, which means the sins of the present day. Pick up with me in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the flesh, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now that's a heady passage of scripture. It is a theologically based passage of scripture. Let's just boil it down to what Paul is teaching. In this life, you are still going to struggle with sin. Every person that has had their past covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and then quickly realize that you are still sinning and you're still struggling with it, has had some sort of a wrestling match with that. We are still going to struggle with sin until such a day that we stand before God. So that struggle has to be covered by the blood of Christ as well. And that's what Paul is teaching. If the Holy Spirit lives within you, you are no longer mastered by that sin. Though you may still struggle with it, It is not your master. Outside of Christ, any person that is dealing with sin, which means every person, is mastered by that sin. But in Christ, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart, you are now controlled by the Spirit. He is your master. The sin is no longer your master. And the longer you walk with God, the more sin falls off the page. The more you desire relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, the less hold sin has on you. It just begins to diminish. Now, you're still going to struggle as you are pursuing a righteous relationship with God, which means a right standing before Him, but it's going to get less and less the longer you walk with Christ. And because of that, in our salvation, Jesus died to cover our present sins. Now, Paul would go on in Romans chapter 8 to teach that he also covered our future, and that's part of salvation as well. Pick up with me in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. There's the third level of salvation. It comes when we stand before God. Now that may happen when Jesus returns and takes his church home, or it may happen when your life on this earth is over and you find yourself in the presence of the Lord. Whatever it is, at that point, you will receive the third dimension of salvation, which is glorification. And that remains for the future. That glorification says that sin no longer has any hold on you whatsoever. John would teach in the book of Revelation that when we get to heaven, we will stand in a place where there is no more death, crying, mourning, or pain. Paul would teach in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. Heaven promises no death, which means that it is promising no sin. When we get to heaven and we have received that future salvation, there is no sin. It will no longer have hold on us. That's part of the redemption that waits for us, for every believer. So at the end of this passage, what we read was the simplified version of this. God calls those that he has predestined to a salvation from their past sins. He justifies those that he has called from the effects of their present sins as they are waiting for the glorification that comes in the salvation in the future. Three dimensions of salvation. The natural question in this study has to be, well, which one is the helmet for? Well, by the rank order scale being turned upside down, we know that Paul's not talking about salvation from the past. There's strong implication that he might be talking about salvation from the present and certainly salvation in the future. But here's what we know from a study of the Bible. This is rock solid. Satan has zero influence on our past. Because of what Jesus did on the cross... This is all taken care of. It cannot be changed. Jesus cannot be taken off of the cross. His blood cannot be put back into his body. That event cannot be erased from history. Therefore, the devil has no influence over this. As a result of that, he also has no influence over this because Jesus' death on the cross also took care of our present sins. They're rock solid. Satan can do nothing about that. Nothing at all. So this helmet of salvation, if it does not impact this or this, does that mean that it impacts this? No, because God's promises are solid. 
And he has already told us the way it's going to be in the future when we receive this glorification. But there is some fluidity right here. Right between the present and the future. This has already been taken care of by Jesus. So is this. This is a promise of God that waits for us. And we are living right in this area. And our enemy wants to destroy our future salvation. He cannot destroy it from God's perspective, so he must attack it from ours. Therefore, God says you put on the helmet of salvation so that he can't do that. He can't swing that broad sword towards your head and divide your mind so that you say, yes, I believe in God, but not really. Or I believe in this part of God, but not this part. Or I want to walk with God, but I am still so stuck in the flesh, I can't walk with God. That's the way Satan does this. And what we know through our study of the armor of God is his weapons are very, very, very few. But the ones he has, he uses well. Now, I don't want to sound like a broken record in this study, but I want to drive this home again. The way that he will attack your future salvation, you receiving that glorification in heaven, being able to stand in the presence of God, comes really in just two ways. He will attack the truth of God and his word. He'll cause you to question it and doubt it. And once he has done that, he will cause you to question whether God's love can be trusted. Does God really love you? He's been doing that from the beginning of time and he is still doing that today. Can God's word be trusted and does God really love you? And the sole reason that he does that is to get you to walk away from God. God's never going to leave you. Your past and your present are taken care of. And if you have received salvation in both of those regards, the only one that waits is right here. And this is the place that the enemy is attacking because he wants you to walk away. He wants you to leave the Lord. So he's throwing everything he's got at you. And God says, put on the helmet of salvation so that you don't have to worry about it. That is a helmet that protects this stage of your walk with Christ. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Because this piece of armor fits exactly where it should in the rank order scale of Ephesians chapter 6. You get everything else in place and you better expect that this is going to come under attack. So you put on the helmet of salvation to protect yourself against it. That's why it is number five in the list. Because we're supposed to put it on in that order. The rank order scale is solid. You put the helmet on at this point to protect this. That you might experience this. And for those of you that are looking forward to the day that you get to experience that third dimension of salvation, would you just say amen? Amen. It is something to look forward to. In order to get there, we have to dig a little bit deeper to figure out what it is that we are protecting against. So I want to close out with just a little bit of theology. This, we've already been dealing with a lot of theology. Stay with me as we deal with just a little bit of it. There is a common misconception among people outside of Christ that has to get corrected in order for them to become Christian. The battle has been termed do versus done. A lot of people believe that salvation is based on what we do or don't do. That's how we find our way into heaven. 
believing that our actions will lead to our salvation. Well, that is Old Testament thinking, and it does not work. It didn't work then, and it doesn't work today. Your salvation cannot rest on what you do or don't do. It can only rest on Jesus Christ. That's it. I love the way Bill Heibel says this. Jesus Christ paid perfectly God's need for a sacrifice. That's what Jesus did. He met that need perfectly. And he's the only one that could. There is nothing else that you could do, nothing that I could do that could make us stand in a right relationship with God. That is impossible. But Jesus could. So if you're holding on to the idea that you have to deal with all of your sin and get it out of your life before you can become a Christian, you're holding on to bad theology. You cannot do it. You will fall short every time. You have to get out of the do side of this argument into the done side. The done side teaches that what Jesus did took care of all of it. It is all paid. It has nothing to do with what I do. It has to do with what was done by Jesus Christ. Do versus done. Once we get to that place, the helmet of salvation will fit easily on our heads. And it will protect us from the attacks of the enemy. Because he's going to come at us over and over and over again and try to tell us things like this. You're not worthy. Well, you messed up again. Can't believe you did that. You said you're a Christian and, and look at what you just did. Or maybe it'll come from the voices of other people. I, I thought you were a Christian. You're nothing but a hypocrite. Or maybe you've heard this before. I don't want to go to church. Church is full of hypocrites. Causes you then to look at yourself and say, am I one of those people? Well, let me just answer that question for you. No, you're not. A hypocrite is not a person who says that they're a Christian and sins. That's not hypocrisy. A hypocrite is a person who says there is no God, and then when they need him the most, cry out to him. That's a hypocrite. So the church is not full of hypocrites. We've got a whole bunch of people that sit in church knowing that they need God. They're just struggling in that relationship, and they will until they receive that future salvation. But that struggle is going to get less and less and less because they understand that what was done by Jesus on the cross was, was enough. That was enough. People that are stuck up here need to listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, For it is by grace that we have been saved, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. The people that make their way down into the done category understand some truth of Scripture, like this one. This is found in Hebrews chapter 9. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's that third dimension of salvation. Jesus is ready to give it to you. He wants you to have it. And if we put the helmet of salvation in place, then we can rest easy in this passage of Scripture, again from Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The helmet of salvation ensures that. Pick it up. Put it on. Keep it on. Because when you take it off, you become quite vulnerable. God's never going to leave you. But you can walk away from him 
Don't give the devil a chance to let that happen. Learned an awful lot as I was studying about the helmet of salvation this past week. Some things I I had never thought of before and some battled some misconceptions I had. I had believed through modern television, movies and television, that every helmet during the day of the New Testament that the Roman soldiers would put on was identical to every other helmet. I don't know why I believe that, except on TV, they are all the same. The only differences happen to be what branch of the military you might be in. If you're in the cavalry, you have the big plume on top. If you're a a foot soldier, you just have a basic helmet. But the belief would be that they were all the same. Well, a number of archaeologists and scholars would tell you that that was not the case. They were all different, completely different, every one of them, for very specific reasons. They had to fit individual heads. And they didn't have the ability to mass produce things like we do today. So it wasn't a factory that the governments would call up, the Roman government would call up and say, well, I need a million helmets. They had to have exact measurements. Each helmet was made for each individual soldier. And this is what really shocked me. The majority of cases, they were purchased by the soldier, not by the government. So it was determined by economics as well as function what the helmet might look like. So you had some that were full metal. They were paid for by people with a lot of money and the face guards that would come down, paid for by people with a lot of money. Others, like we already said, might just be made of leather with some strategic placement of metal in it based on the economics of the person that was wearing it. Now, if you don't believe that, remember the story of David and Goliath when David put on Saul's armor and he said, I can't wear this. It was made for Saul, not David. They had to be individually tailored, including the helmets. Well, here's why that struck me as so interesting. Every story of salvation is individualized as well, just like every helmet. There are as many stories of salvation as there are people in Christ. If if you think about that, every Christian in this room times a million, a billion That's how many stories of salvation there are. Every one of them individualized to the case of the person at hand. That's one of the great mysteries of New Testament Christianity, how God draws people unto himself through Jesus Christ. Your story is different than mine. Mine is different than yours. Yours is different than the person sitting next to you. Isn't that a great thing about the kingdom of God? God finds us where we're at, introduces us to His Son, and His Son leads us out in the past and in the present and in the future. He will lead us there as well. The future is the only thing that that brings similarities into our salvation stories outside of Christ. Everything else is varied. That's part of what stirs my heart about doing what I do. It's what stirs many of your hearts about doing what you do and sharing the gospel with other people. Every story is different. And as God writes it, it is always going to be amazing. It really is. The helmet of salvation reflects it. The helmet you wear is different than the helmet I wear. The helmet you need is different than the helmet I need. But God helped us make them. And then all we have to do is put them on. Put it on and protect yourself. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, we covered a lot of ground today, and I am, I'm praying that it didn't become distracting. Praying, Lord, that we're all able to see this helmet 
for the purpose in which it is designed. I am grateful that it's number five on the list so that it causes us to really explore the depth of what this helmet is for. Lord, help us explore that. But I pray that you'll help us wear the helmet as well. I know that we have people in all stages of salvation that need your help. Some need to take their first step into you. Others are battling sin, and others are just looking forward to the end. Whatever the struggle is, Lord, I pray that you meet us in it. And I pray that we have the helmet firmly intact. Thank you, Lord, for being here today, speaking to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.